Welcome to episode 67 of Old School Guns. And uh, of course, we're still in the throes of the pandemic, but there is light at the other end of the tunnel. And uh, hopefully most people will be returning to some semblance of work in the next uh, two weeks. But it's been a very interesting uh, experience, a very interesting time. I kept, I used to look back on the 1918 flu pandemic, which my grandparents lived through and thought, you know, we'll probably never see anything like that again. I think our medicine is, is just too advanced to uh, have something like that happen again without being able to take some very strong countermeasures. But you know, that's wrong. And it's, it's happened not nearly to the severity, but it could have been, could have been a whole lot worse, could be a whole lot worse. So that's just kind of one of the interesting uh, observations I, I had that basically it came 100 years after the uh, great flu pandemic that lasted from 1918 into uh, 1920. While we're on that, of course, the news this morning is the, uh, the poor lady who is the uh, beauty salon owner in uh, Texas is being released. The governor ordered her release and said there'll be no more jailings over this. If you follow that story, this lady had, had a beauty parlor. Hey, it's going under. You know, those things are notoriously <laughs> undercapitalized. I mean, it's not like they can stay closed for months and months and have cash to operate on, pay the rent, the utilities, and everything else. So she opened back up a week before the order was lifted in Texas. And, and of course, she gets arrested and all kinds of trouble and brought before an Obama appointee judge who who looks like he's there to fill a quota or something and um, this guy tries to humiliate her this this judicial thug practicing judicial thuggery simply because somebody at some point thought that this jerk should be a uh, a judge and he's trying to humiliate this woman by saying you're going to apologize or I'm going to throw you in jail and I want to hear contrition you know that's none of that is part of the law none none of that is part of the law and these stupid orders that are out there, this is not martial law. You know, violating a social distancing guideline is not a crime because a guideline is not a law. Hasn't been passed by a legislative body, hasn't been reviewed by any kind of judicial process. Stuff like that is unconstitutional. You have, you have the right to be as stupid as you want to be in a lot of ways. And that's one of the ways. You have freedom of assembly is a constitutional right and they they cannot take that away and as I said it's not martial law um, you could argue that maybe a pandemic should be martial law that there should be some special powers or whatever but people just going around ordering things and thinking that everybody has to comply under the penalty of law is just mistaken and there's gonna be a big backlash over this before the protests started happening I said there was gonna be trouble and there was so trust me now, there will be a backlash. There will be lawsuits. There will be um, some electoral remedies to some of these idiot governors and idiot other people that are that are out putting these orders out. And I think uh, the, the humorous part is nobody's even thinking about the, the goofy impeachment trial they had and all the rest of it. Everybody is has passed that. And I think this has strengthened Donald Trump exponentially I think it has really strengthened him and it has made the Democratic you know their whole process of selecting a candidate look even more ridiculous than it than it probably is but they look very ridiculous and uh, 
it's it's going to be <laughs> very interesting but I don't even think it's going to be a close race in November. But just think how different this pandemic situation could have been if we did not have a Second Amendment-friendly administration in the White House. Uh, you would have seen a lot different things, confiscations, and, and they would have provoked violence. That's, that's what the left wants to do. They want to provoke violence. That's what Antifa is all about. So that is what's going on there. But I do have some other information. Um, more on fakes. And uh, <laughs> that's more on fakes, not morons fake. But um, as, as, as fate would have it, that collector I was telling you about, guy who collects military and other things, one of the, he, he collects guns, military, you know, World War II and World War I kind of related, and a few other things. Know, those kind of related kind of traditional guns like most people do and the guy who's is engaged in fakery and actually he's even kind of deluded himself into believing that his own uh, fakes are the the real McCoy or as good as the real McCoy well one of the other things he does is dabbles in restoring military vehicles which are you know kind of World War two the you know the GPW and all the little Jeep the little Jeep that used to run around the battlefield so Anyway, he just purchased one of those and put pictures up on one of the vehicle sites. And I'm a member of this site, too, although I don't restore anything like that. I, I have an interest in because I just kind of like old military stuff, not because I'm a, I'm a mechanic and because I'm not. But anyway, he put pictures of this, his latest uh, acquisition up, which was a, a rare early Jeep. And as it turns out, all the people, not all the people, but many of the people on this site that know that model particularly well, pointed out the various and obvious fakery that had been committed on it. Things like replaced data pay, uh, plates, um, the wrong kind of, of axle and running gear, the frame may be incorrect, the engine, and all these things. You know, to me, I don't really care about any of that stuff. I'm, I'm kind of like, if it looks good on the outside, hey, what's underneath it makes it go is, is okay. But there are a lot of people who put an intense amount of effort into the detail that when you pop the hood up, it's exactly like it was in 1940-whatever. Um, that's really not me. I'm just like, hey, vehicles have got to run. And if you want to enjoy them and run, and if you can enhance reliability, I'm fine with it. But it's amazing how people will fake data plates and fake some of these little little uh, numbers that are embossed or, or uh, stamped here and there. It's just absolutely amazing to me. And, uh, you know, right after the last podcast, to the old... the. The biggest faker I know basically was taken in by a fake. So so there's karma for you, I guess. Oh, man. Oh, one correction I have to make is in my top five tanks, I think I said the M36 Jackson had a top speed of 50 miles an hour. It actually does not. It's lower than that. It's like in the 30s and, and up to around 40. The, the M18, I think, was the fastest tank destroyer, and it would go like 45 miles an hour. Uh, the Jackson was pretty good, except there were a couple different versions of it, which were almost like different vehicles. And there was one version where they just took a Sherman hull with all the armor and everything, and they just put the 90 millimeter 
tank destroyer turret on it, and they called that an M36 also. And that just had the top, same top speed of the, of the Sherman, like 26 miles an hour. So, uh, stand corrected on the uh, the M36 Jackson, but all my other comments stand. I want the 90 millimeter gun, and I want to hurt and burn things. So, that's what the uh, that's what the deal is. Okay, so rather early this time, we are going to go straight into Q&A. Um, I think that there's some good questions that uh, got sent to me. So the first one is, what is the best lever gun ever? Because they, they heard me talking about lever guns the last time and how, you know, really, what's the best fighting bolt action you can get nowadays? And maybe, maybe I opined that maybe it's a lever gun. I don't know. Uh, I think the two best lever guns... Well, there's three great lever guns, in my opinion, for defensive use, you know. Uh, that's the 94 Winchester, the 86 Winchester, and the uh, Marlin 336. And the reason I like those three is that the 86 is powerful. It can take a 4570. It's a great gun. And, you know, there is a Marlin equivalent to that somewhere. And that, that's a good gun, too. But I like the 86. It's a very, very streamlined, for as strong as it is, and as and as well built as it is, it's actually a pretty streamlined design. It it, it really is pretty good. Uh, actually, Browning I think had imported some of the uh, Japanese-made 1886 carbines uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, and I always wanted one of those. They only had a capacity of like I think one round in the chamber and four rounds in the magazine, or maybe it was one in the chamber and five in the magazine. But that was a very very cool gun. You know, very very easy to handle and powerful. But the 94 is no slouch. When the 94 came out, it came out in 38-55, and then they necked that down to 30 caliber, and it became the 30-30. And that was considered a very, very state-of-the-art, high-speed, you know, kind of flat-shooting cartridge, powerful cartridge, compared to, like, the 92 Winchester or the 73. I mean, in power-wise, it was eons ahead. And uh, it got its reasonable share of military use. Most people, when they think of a military Winchester, think of the 1895, the one that was, uh, they put out, you know, kind of military-style carbines in 30, 40 Krag, and then um, a whole bunch of them were s sold to Imperial Russia during the First World War. But the 95, to me, has never been as convenient to carry. Uh, it always seems a little more awkward. I, I realize you can load it with stripper clips, which makes it, theoretically better but i'm i'm more of a 94 guy so in the 94 was used well it was used in the mexican revolution quite a bit it was it was kind of a gun that you you bought it was uh, that dual purpose you could you could hunt deer with it but it was also good for defense it um was used by the u.s army in world war one when they were uh i think <laughs> i think they were uh guarding copper mines and and tree forests where they had a specific type of spruce tree that they used in the early aircraft because it had to be really really light wood because they had crummy engines and the aerodynamics weren't very good so they had to have, make them out of light stuff so they were they were kind of guarding all that and of course they weren't going to use service rifles they they bought a whole bunch of uh 94 winchesters uh there were a bunch of 94 winchesters bought during world war ii and some of them by the Canadian Rangers who were out kind of defending the west coast of Canada against a Japanese invasion. Not very likely if you've ever seen the west coast of Canada, but uh, hey, good enough excuse to get some 94s and some, you know, crates of ammo, I guess. 
so I like that. I like the 86 because of its power and its compact design. And, uh, you know, it's a really strong locking design. And I also like the Marlin 336, which is really the affordable 3030 lever gun you can get now. I mean, uh, um, even with all this COVID stuff going on for a few weeks, my uh, local Walmart had a uh, 336 in there. And I think it was under $400. So um, not a bad, not a bad uh deal to go so those i think are the best lever guns ever the other ones are certainly fun um and i like the pistol caliber ones they're a lot of fun to shoot but when it comes to real rifle and rifle performance uh i think the 3030 and the lever gun are just a, a perfect match for a lot of different uses okay here's another one for a gun collector a person who collects guns whatever they are you know there are people who collect single action armies and have several examples or several dozen examples or 1911 pistols or you know any collectible guns that have value what is the best defense gun for a person like that because usually they don't want to use one of their the guns from their collection you know you don't want to use a two thousand dollar gun to shoot a burglar with and then the cops confiscate it i mean some some people might some people might but I think uh, most people buy a utilitarian type of a gun for that. And, you know, the best place to look, in my opinion, are at police trade-ins. You can get a 40 Smith & Wesson anything for under 300 bucks, And you can even get some of the uh, uh, better, you know, the earlier SIGs uh, that were in 40 Smith & Wesson. You can find those for, I think, 400 or 500 bucks. 500 bucks, I think. And, um, you know, there's used M&Ps out there. There's used... All these, there's all these kind of modern handguns that are used out there in 40 Smith & Wesson. Occasionally some 9mm come on the market if you really have to have a 9. But I think the 40 is the best buy. Uh, powerful, you know, fine ammo for it. It's going to be more expensive than 9, but that's the way it goes. Um, there's even a, a couple places got 357 SIG police trade-ins in there. So go for one of those. Uh, if you want to buy new, for me, I would buy... I would look really hard at a Rock Island um, auto ordnance makes, you know, GI style 1911, as does TSIS makes GI style and some more modern styles. All those things are, you know, sub 450 bucks. The auto ordnance might be a little higher, but, um, you know, those are those are all really good alternatives to get a 1911 style handgun that, you know, hey, if you have to use it for self-defense and the police confiscate it, at least you're not losing a chunk of your collection so I think those are uh, those are all good choices another good choice is, and I see them and that's the uh, you know Ruger makes kind of a low-end nine millimeter pistol holds 15 rounds for I think I've seen those things for like you know 260 270 dollars I mean you can't go wrong with something like that Ruger good reliable no frills and it's got a good factory warranty so uh, you can throw that into the mix also. So there's some really good guns out there that you can uh, uh, get that that won't take <laughs> won't take the uh, crown jewel out of your collection. Okay, here's another one. What is the deal with pro going to a protest with a gun, especially a long gun? What is this supposed to achieve? And the answer is, well, it, it achieves some things. But my advice is don't ever do it. I would never do it. I would never do it. And here's why. It's not that I'm against guns being at a protest. 
because they do send a signal that, hey, you know, we're not just a pushover. They send a signal that there's some resolve and other things. However, I'm not really big into using a firearm for symbology, for symbolic reasons. You know, it's a totem that you carry and, and, and show and show off. And that's what these protests kind of are. These people show up. They're, they're not really going there with the idea of using the gun, which is a good thing, which is a good thing. But uh, it's only a matter of time before Antifa or something like that decides that they're going to jump a few of these guys who are carrying long guns, take the guns away from them, create some sort of mayhem. You know, I just don't think it's a wise thing to do. I, I don't really, I don't go to protests anyway because, frankly, I don't want to get into a hassle or scuffle with some of the scum that, that could go there to oppose you. And think about the those poor Catholic kids from the Covington Catholic School and, you know, that ass face with the drum, you know, you know, Chief chief Big Loser or whatever his name was. You know, I, you don't need to run across people like that. You really don't need to run across people like that. If you feel the need to protest, uh, go out and peacefully protest. But I would say go in a group and, and be, be careful. Now, you know, concealed carry and something like that, that's that's a risk too. That's any anytime you're in a volatile situation and something starts happening, you know how stories get spun. That's my, my best advice is stay away. Don't protest. Don't be there. Uh, find other ways, you know, donating money to candidates who have the, the correct point of view and, and a few other things are, are probably a lot better than risking yourself to arrest your long gun to be taken or or uh, trashed or something else. So that's what I do. And again, I got to apologize again. I do have the uh, I do have the allergy thing going on. So I am feeling a little little raspy. So if you can put up with the raspiness, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Um Hopefully this too shall pass, and usually by the summer I get a lot better, so. Okay. Ah, and since I mentioned tanks the last time, I got one or, yeah, I got two tank questions here. So, let me see. The first tank question is, in World War II, were Soviet tanks better because they used diesel fuel versus gasoline? Were they less prone to catch fire? And the answer is no. The answer is uh, one of the myths is that diesel, because of its low, uh, yeah, is it lower flash point or higher flash point? Well, because it's less flammable than gasoline, that it would be less susceptible to burning if the tank got hit. the The problem with that is there's there's several there's and the Soviets weren't like hey we're they didn't outthink everybody by having diesel. Armored vehicle fires are usually caused by in the like the 80 or 90 percentile from ammunition fires. It's the ammunition cooking off, not the fuel that causes the fires. And that's why they went with what they called wet stowage uh, in Sherman tanks, uh, probably what, 1944, 1945. That prevented a lot of vehicle fires. Now that that flies in the face of the fact that allegedly Sherman tanks were called Ronsons because Ronsons were, were a form of lighter and their their slogan was lights first time every time and that was supposed to be the Sherman and its propensity to catch fire. The problem was Ronsons weren't well known. They were kind of a post-war brand and they didn't use that slogan until the 1950s. So, you know, that's all, 
all this mythology kind of gets mixed up. But the wet stowage cut down on fires. Now, the reason, why would you use gasoline vis-a-vis -vis diesel anyway? I mean, why would you why would you do that if you say, hey, well, you know, if, if there's less risk of fire with diesel, even if it's small, why not just use diesel engines and diesel? The Soviets were kind of forced to, and they had to, well, let's go back a little bit further. In the 1920s and 30s, military budgets were so paltry that they didn't have money to develop tank engines. But because of civilian aviation and military aviation, there was a lot of impulse to develop powerful aircraft engines. And it was, imagine if you lived through the 1990s where every week they came out with a computer that had more megahertz so you could buy the best one this week and two weeks later it was an also ran because several other ones had eclipsed the computing power of your computer it was the same thing with horsepower and aviation engines in the 1930s literally at the after every turn of the month or whatever else somebody was coming out with a more powerful and better better engine so you had, by the time World War II starts, and there weren't a lot of tanks, there weren't a lot in the 1930s, contrary to belief, tanks had a few, or countries had a few tanks, and, you know, they, they would run a model for a while, and then kind of, you know, get something else, but they were buying them in fairly small batches, so there wasn't a market for really good tank engines, so by the time World War II rolls around, and, and in fact, most of them used, like, car engines, which... You can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine how underpowered, no torque, and everything else using a six or eight cylinder car engine, you know, in a in a tank was, or tankette, you know, some of the smaller tanks. It it just there weren't a lot of great engines, and tanks weren't moving very fast. World War II starts to come up on the horizon, and countries are looking for powerful engines, and they find that aircraft engines have the power output that they want. The problem is it takes a high grade of fuel to power an aircraft engine. So therefore, um, you're, you're looking at a pretty good quality of fuel to keep your, your engines, your tanks going because your tanks essentially have aircraft engines. Now that's not a big deal in some ways because, hey, your trucks are all going to run on gasoline, your Jeeps, all of your equipment, even your generators, you can run everything on gasoline. So you run it on high-quality gasoline. That's what you do. And the United States could produce scads of high-quality gasoline. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, could not produce really a lot of high-quality gasoline. And what they could produce was going to their air force. And the Soviets had a very, very large air force. I mean, the first week of Operation Barbarossa, the German invasion of the Soviet Union, there were 5,000 Soviet aircraft that were shot down. And that's not even counting what was destroyed on the ground. They had 5,000 planes destroyed in the air. It takes a lot of fuel to get 5,000 planes up into the air. So they didn't have a lot of extra high-quality gasoline for tanks and things. Therefore, they were converting to diesel because diesel is a very low-quality fuel. It's easy to make. It's easy to refine and make. So that's that's why the Soviets really liked diesel. It it was it made their production a lot easier. One of the things that's unknown to most people is that the United States we supplied the Soviets with ungodly amounts of aviation fuel for the Soviet Air Force. Enough. I, the one I think it was the uh, George C. Marshall Center 
one of their presentations, uh, they said basically we provided four million sorties worth. That's one airplane flying on a mission, but four million uh, sorties of gasoline to the Soviet Union. So that's a lot of fuel. And, you know, a lot of that kind of went through the Northern Pacific under Soviet flagged ships. And, you know, it's a big story about how all that happens. But that's an, a lot of fuel. That's a lot of fuel. So they, they were very smart, and they basically said, we've got to run our stuff on something else. So they ran their tanks on diesel. Very smart. It really, though, the fires were not a were not a contributing factor. Wet stowage, basically, uh, it became very rare for a tank to burn after it after wet stowage became a thing. And so, you know, went from like 80% of fires all the way down to less than 10%. So they did not outthink everybody. It was just kind of the way it was. And uh, a tank, whether it's powered by diesel or gasoline, is almost equally susceptible to fire because it's the ammunition that causes it. Okay. Did the Battle of the Bulge, the German Ardennes Offensive, have any chance for success and why? Here's another another tank question. Okay. Uh, it did not have any chance for success. And here's why. Because they had, and there, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of reasons. They didn't plan the roads right. They, you know, they didn't plan the convoys and the movements and all the other stuff right. They didn't have the engineer equipment in the right place. But to come down to something very much more basic, they had the wrong kind of equipment, exactly the wrong equipment. When you're using, and they used a lot of Tiger 1s, Tiger 2s, and Panthers. Panther's a good tank. Totally good, makes sense. But it's a thirsty tank too, so it's it you're gonna have to fuel it. And what they needed was were tanks that were capable of dynamic swift maneuver, and the heavier armor wasn't capable of that. You know, uh, when you talk about 16 miles an hour for a Tiger, and I think the uh, uh, yeah, and that's a, that was Tiger One and Tiger Two were both about the same. They were powered by about the same. Tiger Two is actually even heavier. I think I think cross country the Tiger Two top speed was like ten less than ten miles an hour, nine point seven miles an hour, something ridiculous like that. So you're not going to do swift maneuver. Heavy tanks in World War Two were designed for two purposes. One purpose was to crush enemy defenses so that swifter formations could bypass and get into the rear area and maneuver. The other use was defensive use, which is, you know, and you see it again and again and again, especially uh, recounted from battles of the Eastern Front, but some from the Western Front where, hey, there's a tiger and it's kind of dug in and, uh, you know, it can wipe out 10 or 12 enemy tanks because it's just its its armor is is uh, very very strong it's it's behind you know berms or something and it's got good fields of fire so it it is going to be very very difficult to to uh, neutralize that kind of deal i think that in some ways the western allies were lucky the germans did the ardennes offensive because it squandered all of this combat power and all of this formidable defensive combat power in the in the form of Tiger One and Tiger Two tanks, uh, 
that, you know, had they had all these tanks to use during the defense of Germany, that would have been a lot tougher. That would have been a lot tougher and would have cost a lot more casualties. So I, I think that even though you can look at the Battle of the Bulge, the initial stages, especially as being uh, somewhat disastrous and somewhat, you know, heavy casualties, I think it was if the other what if would be what if they'd kept all this defensive power and defended every German town, every bridge crossing, or every river crossing, every uh, crossroads with a lot more combat power? I think that the casualties would have been, for the Western Allies, would have been much, much higher. So I think we were actually lucky that they squandered these resources in an operation that was doomed to fail because they had the wrong equipment set, they had the wrong planning, and in fact... Uh, it's it's kind of come to light that the German long-range plans, they were supposed to go all the way to Antwerp, but they did not have operational plans that uh, went beyond the uh, Meuse River. You know, they just didn't think that they were actually even... They The generals and the planners knew that this was not going to succeed. It wasn't going to, to recreate a 1940 situation where you divide the Allies and force the the British back on the beaches. The Allies just had too much air power and too much ground firepower to allow that to happen. So it was never going to be a a successful operation. It was kind of this defiant last stand move of, you know, we're not going to win, but we can still hurt you. That's that's kind of what the Battle of the Bulge really was. Okay, here is another question. What is the biggest lesson you learned from the pandemic? Well, there's a lot of different answers to that. The first question, the first one is, um, the first one is that a lot of preppers, I think, go way overboard. But it's good to have some preparation. But I don't know that being a doomsday prepper is is particularly wise there's there's kind of the two ends of the uh, spectrum the doomsday preppers <laughs> and we've talked about some of these guys and then the people who do nothing and kind of where you want to be is in the middle kind of where you want to be is in the middle um and there's risk involved you know there's there's risk involved but i think if you're in the middle if you have you know the fema recommendation plus some weapons fema never recommends weapons but if you got the FEMA recommendation of you know a week of food in your house and and you have weapons uh, you're gonna be in pretty good shape pretty good shape uh, you know so that's that's the biggest lesson I've learned that way the the biggest kind of personal lesson is that um, you know you kind of drive on with your your life keep if you're you know, taking a course, you keep taking it. If it moves online, you keep doing your work. If you work from home, uh, as far as the shooting hobbies and collecting hobbies, yeah, you know, going out and browsing in gun stores is kind of not a thing. That's not happening. Uh, you can still look online, but you got to find a dealer who can do transfer. But the thing to do is do a good internal audit. And you know, it's a, as a hand loader, I had all kinds of stuff. There were projects of manana manana. I'll get to that. Well, now I've gotten to them. So I've loaded some ammunition. I've loaded, uh, used up some of the, you know, half things of powder because now I can make some practice rounds so that when I'm sighting in, I'm not using my, my match rounds. I can get close with these practice rounds. 
and then finish sighting in with my uh, my other my good rounds, my match rounds. I um, loaded a lot of pistol ammunition, you know, just with stuff I had here, just use up stuff here, you know, hey, there's there's this, that, and the other thing. And you got to go through your stuff. And, you know, if you've been a hand loader for a while, you, you kind of accrue these little odd boxes of things. You say, yeah, I, I've got a use for those. I'll, I'll figure it out. Well, now's the time. Now's the time to load it. Now's the time to use it. But the lesson that all that comes around to is just make sure you have enough bullets, powder, and primers to be able to do some hand loading. If you're stuck in your house for two weeks, six weeks, or whatever it is, you just have to have the ability to, to do something and, and you can you can crank out a couple years worth of uh, practice in uh, plinking ammo just by what you have on hand. So that's the biggest thing, keep a, keep a supply of stuff on, which is a good idea in case there's even a run on components as there had been after say Sandy Hook or some of these other some of these other events uh, you basically want to have uh, you know some stuff on hand so that you can kind of carry you through that that period where nothing's available and get you to the other side where everything becomes available again so those are about the biggest lessons from the pandemic that I've learned so I'd be interested to hear if you've learned something else then go ahead and uh, you can always uh, email me or leave a comment on Podbean. And the email is kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com. Okay, another question is, what do you think is the best 32 automatic pistol? And I'd say that I, I don't like the ones that are too big, and I don't like the ones that are too small. But if I have to choose between big or small, I choose big. I think the Beretta 84 is the Cheetah. They were selling those uh, a while. Those, those are, I got a chance to shoot one of those. They were, they're very cool, very nice gun. My favorite, though, of all time is the Walther PPK in its various, the PP and the PPK. And those are, those are of all of those, my favorite version is the PPKL, which is which is kind of a rare gun, but it has the aluminum frame, which makes it a very nice gun to carry, very light, very 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 nice. So that's a that's a very cool gun to carry. I do like the P just for strictly shooting. I love the PP. The PP is a great little pistol. Feels so good and well balanced in the hand. Yeah, you can really see why they've been so popular over. Well, it's almost 90 years now. Uh, they came out in the uh, they came out in the 30s, 1929. I think the PP came out, so it's been it's been 90 years uh, of the PPK, PP and PPK. I think the PPK came out in 32, maybe. But uh, yeah, those are those are still great designs, and they still sort of make them. So um, at least in 22, I haven't looked for other calibers, but I don't think they make 32s anymore. Maybe in Europe, but I doubt it. And that also includes, you know, for, for years they had a uh, an engineering uh, or a manufacturing agreement with Manhurin in France. And Manhurin uh, made PPs and PPKs. There's always a lot of talk about who actually made what where. Were the, uh, were the Walther PPs, were they actually made by Manhurin and then just stamped Walther? Oh, who knows? Who knows? But, uh, yeah, it's, I think that and that arrangement ended in the uh, early 1980s.
kind of too bad because it produced some very very cool very interesting um, guns one of the uh, one of the most interesting things was the uh, the post-war p1 which was the aluminum framed German p38 from World War two but the p1 um, was also manufactured in France and and it's got Manhurin logos and everything on it and they were adopted by the West Berlin police because there was a one of the treaty deals going on one of the one of the subparagraphs of whatever convoluted and complex treaties they had governing you know um, Berlin and its partition among the the allies and, and and all the rest of this was that the West German police could not use German manufactured weapons so they would get the exact same weapon essentially it just had it would just had french markings so i always thought that was really kind of funny that the west german police had french made german designed <laughs> pistols and that went on for for a long time and they they sold those uh surplus for years and years and uh it's a very cool very cool uh subset of of the uh, cold war kind of brought around by more political considerations than uh than anything else so that's that's one of the fascinating things about walther handguns they've got a, a, a rich history but when it comes to 32s the ppkl is the best okay here's another question what do you think of the 6.5 Creedmoor versus the 7.62 NATO in military weapons? U.S. SOCOM has just adopted 6.5 Creedmoor uh, for use in sniper weapons. Okay, well, I, I think that that's probably smart. Um, 6.5 Creedmoor is designed to have minimal trajectory at longer range. And so, therefore, it's easier to hit, and that's what you want snipers to do. That's what we pay them to do. So, I think, you know, for whatever sniper systems they want to use, I think 6.5 Creedmoor probably makes a lot of sense. Probably makes uh, a good deal of sense. For myself, if... Uh, and I, I know that they're out there now. They have uh, M1As and 6.5 Creedmoor, you know, the semi-automatic... Uh, version civilian version of the m14 i know you can get 6.5 creed more i believe in ar10 style platforms and and other things um i personally would rather have 762 nato 762 nato for general use is a very underrated cartridge it, it used to be overrated now it's underrated but uh, you know you're basically getting very nearly 30-06 ball M2 power out of a cartridge. It's a lot more cartridge that's a lot more compact and uh, a lot more efficiently designed. And that was allowed by advances in powder as, as much as anything else. So you really can get a, uh, a really, you really have a nice package that is a combination of compactness and power. And, you know, the other thing, too, is just presence alone. It's been out around since 1954, and um, there are a lot of great weapons that are already designed for it. And when somebody comes out with a full-caliber battle rifle, they inevitably come out with a 7.62 NATO version, uh, whether it's one that's been adopted, like the FNFAL and G3 and M14 and AR-10 and all the rest of it, or the newcomers, you know, the Desert Tech 
what do they call it, the MDR or whatever, the, the bullpup looking thing. You know, everybody, if you if you want to produce a serious military weapon, uh, you produce it in 7.62 NATO. So you've got a lot of great um, choices out there for for it. And it, and it basically, it, it does everything it's supposed to do. It does exactly everything it's supposed to do. And it's, you know, it's not an intermediate cartridge, but it's, it's like better. You know, it's better than intermediate because it, it really can kill things. And out to 500 yards, it is a thumper. And uh, nowadays we kind of, we kind of play it down a little bit, but it's, you know, power, power counts for something. And so it's a, uh, it's definitely got the kind of power that you, you want to have that, you know, face it, five five six seven six two thirty nine, and remains to be seen, but I suspect 6.5 Creedmoor will not be as powerful. They have advantages of their own, but the delivering the kind of power 762 NATO does is not one of them. So, therefore, that's what I think of the 6.5 Creedmoor versus... The, the other reason is... Um, and I haven't checked, but I don't think there's any kind of thing that looks like mil-spec 6.5 Creedmoor out there. I know there's hunting rounds, and there may be some some full metal jacket or boat-tail hollow point type, type of uh, um, rounds that are very expensive. The stuff I shoot in my Savage 6.5 Creedmoor... <laughs> Yeah, it, it can run some. It can run some money. You know, thirty dollars for twenty rounds or whatever it is, and uh, but you can still find you know surplus GI mil spec style ammunition uh, for about half that cost for the seven six two NATO, which is really going to be good ammunition and give you really good performance. That ball M eighty equivalent uh, is is still out there. It's still good, and for the you know the the duffers, you know, the the dinosaurs amongst us, of which I am proudly one. You know, if you still want to shoot NRA or, or service rifle, you know, you can still use an, a matched out M1A or an M14 and, you know, have a great time, still be there. And you will, it will produce very, very well. It's been eclipsed because the, well, that's, that's something else. Why is... How did it get eclipsed so quickly in high power and service rifle matches? And I'll tell you one of the reasons is cost. The uh, the cost of components is going up. You know, back in the day when you could get surplus ammo, surplus powder, surplus bullets, surplus brass, it was very efficient to load 7.62 NATO or 30-06. But as the cost of all that has gone up, uh, why would you spend twice as much money? Because if you do your own hand loading, you know that it takes almost twice as much powder for a uh, 7.62 NATO as it does for a, uh, a 5.56 match load. So you're, you're spending twice as much. The bullets are more expensive. The cases and the powder is more expensive. So why would you spend that additional money to get lesser performance where if you drop down to the smaller cartridge everything's cheaper and the way the guns are now they they've act, they've got that accurizing down to a, a science so there you are uh that's that's how it was eclipsed so quickly but that does not mean that it is still not a killer and as i've said on this podcast before when uh when i was in iraq they were using 
M14s against the bad guys, and everybody loved it, and they did a great job. So 7.62 NATO and battle rifles are a force to be reckoned with. Okay, here's another question. Do you think the BM-59 was a better design than the U.S. M14? And the answer is I, I really like the BM-59. I think it was a great, innovative design. I don't think it was any better. I think they, they both basically started the same place, which was with the Garand system, and they wound up with the same place, which was with a product-improved, magazine-fed Garand system. So I, I just don't think that they, they really... Uh, um, there's that much difference between the two of them. Uh, the BM-59 was, was done pretty quickly. The drawbacks to it were that it they used Garand receivers and a lot of Garand parts, which would have been smart and efficient, but they're also heavier. They didn't have the efficiency of the, of the smaller receiver and the smaller bolt, you know, the shorter bolt, the shorter receiver and all that. And that was a big selling point of the 762 by 51 NATO was you could now design weapons that were more compact. Remember when they tried to make, when they when they basically said, you know, the Garand's a great rifle, but we would like it magazine fed. The fact that it shot 30-06 was a problem. And part of that problem was by the time they got a 20-round magazine in it, got it to work and got everything tweaked and all up, the thing started weighing, the weight was approaching that of a BAR. So they knew that that was going to be far too heavy. So we need to get that kind of power. They knew they needed a technological revolution. And the revolution came in the fact of improved powders allowed them to make a smaller cartridge of the same power. So the powder had the power. And uh, when you did that, you could make you could make both rifles and machine guns more compact and smaller and lighter weight. And, you know, you talk about a half inch, may not be too much, but, you know, you, you take a Garand and t put it right next to an M1A, and you can see where they, it, it took, it, it definitely made a big improvement. It definitely made a big improvement. Um, they kept all the great features. It was a product improved Garand, and they're just two different methods of, of getting there, is, is what the BM-59 and the other uh, ones were. Now, had the United States and Italy gone in as partners, another one of those great what-ifs, what if they'd been partners? What if they? What if the Beretta guys had called up Springfield Armory and said, hey, you know, we kind of figured out how to do this. Do you want to, you want to, we want in on it? And somebody said, yeah. On the other end of the phone, somebody said, yeah, let us know. And, um, if they'd both come up, we still would have been in the same place. We still would have been in the early 1960s looking for the next revolutionary change, which would have been the AR series, not an evolutionary change. Although I will, I will tell you, I still will uh, proffer my, once again, I will proffer my thing that, that, you know, if Curtis LeMay had gone, when he went to the picnic and saw the guy blowing up the watermelons with the AR-15, with you know the prototype AR-15, if he had, what if that had, what if that person, rather than being somebody from Fairchild Aircraft or in Colt or whatever it was, what if that had been Bill Ruger with a Mini-14? You know, wow! All of a sudden, maybe the Air Force would have wanted Mini-14s in a militarized version, and, and maybe there would have been, you know, at at a certain point, maybe we would have stuck with that Garand style system. 
a little bit longer. Maybe maybe it would have been a little bit longer. One of the great what ifs. What if that had been Bill Ruger instead of a guy from, you know, Fairchild and Colt or whatever whatever it was. So, you know, it just goes to show you. But in, in reality, of course, the Mini 14 didn't come out until 10 years later. It's actually a much newer design than the AR is. But, uh, you know, the principles were all there. It could have been... If, if somebody had said design one of these things, basically make a bigger M1 carbine in this, you know, they could have, they would have come up with something like the 5.7 Johnson, which, you know, was kind of like, uh, um, it's almost like the uh, FN round now, you know, the 5.7 by 28 or whatever. It's the same kind of cartridge. Um, they would have had that if they had had 5.56 five, or, or 2.23, I guess it was 2.23. 22 Remington Magnum that they actually uh, developed it from. But, um, or 22 Re 222 Remington, I guess, is what they developed it from. And uh, if they'd had all that, yeah, you could have, could have been, could have been that we would have been carrying little Garands around, little Garand style Mini 14s around for a few years. But I don't think that, uh, I think that the, even the military thinking when the M14 came out, and, and some of these guys were working for Fairchild, so it's probably not fair to say, but um, Jacob Devers, the guy, the World War II general who was head of, uh, uh, well, he was head of the development of the equipment for ground forces. You know, basically everything that went overseas and got used in combat had to kind of be approved by him as in his, peop, his organization as being fit for combat. And then later on, he was a corps commander over in Europe. Um, using this, using the equipment that uh, he'd help approve. Even he looked at the M14 and said, "Hey, no, that's that's not where we want to be. It's it, where we want to be is the AR15." So I re and at the time, I think he was actually working for Fairchild. So maybe it's not a completely objective opinion, but I think it was the right opinion. It was the right opinion. It was the M14 was and BM59 and you know toss a few other ones in there they were designed for the world war ii battlefield not that they were designed for the 1946 battlefield and not the 1966 battlefield so that's uh that's where we are with the 762 nato and and uh, wandering off course uh and talking about 6.5 creedmoor versus 762 nato okay next question what is the funniest gun story that you have witnessed I have to say, I haven't really witnessed a whole lot of anything funny, you know, really humorous. But I, I do have, I do have one thing that that's there. There is one. There is one. On a youth camp out when I was a kid, of course, you know, tagging along in this, everybody had their sleeping bags and all that. It, it wasn't as organized as the Boy Scouts or anything. It was just something, something a little different. And so, uh, one of my friends' fathers was one of the the, you know guys who were running all this and there there are several adults and all that and and of course we were up in and in, in the woods and everything so uh there were a couple shotguns there just in case just in case we needed them no big deal so anyway uh it's snake country there you know i mean it is snake a lot of rattlesnakes so you know keeping shotguns i don't really remember any pistols but i'm sure some of the adults probably had them but we were too young as kids to, to really have them. I mean, we were, we were kind of kids who, you know, were just starting to shoot 22s. So it wasn't, and the last thing they were going to do is trust, you know, a, a, a herd of 12-year-olds of with, <laughs> with 22s. So we were, we were, the kids were all at arms, and, and there were a few shotguns and things around the adults. 
So we, you know, put up tents and all this and, and putting up five or six people in a tent. So we're sitting there and we're getting ready and the kids are all bedded down. And then we hear this commotion and don't know, don't know what's going on. And some of the adults, my friend's father being one, had his kind of his own tent. And so um, all of a sudden we hear a gun blast. And what had happened was he'd gone into his gone into his tent and started to get into a sleeping bag and he laid out a sleeping bag a few hours before so he gets into a sleeping bag and what does he feel but the cold body of a snake there's a snake in his sleeping bag so he immediately gets out grabs the shotgun and says i gotta kill this thing it's probably a rattler this is rattlesnake country and I can tell you rattlesnake story after rattlesnake story. So he grabs it. It was a single, I think a single shot to 20 gauge. He's got this single shot 20 gauge. He sees this lump where the snake is in his sleeping bag. He draws a bead on it and shoots. And when all the, the feathers and everything settle, he realizes that he just blew his flashlight to pieces. <laughs> wasn't even a snake it was a flashlight but he killed it he got it <laughs> needless needless to say <laughs> that that uh that story uh made the made the rounds spread like wildfire until everybody in town knew about it but uh just goes to show you you know you should shake out your sleeping bag before you climb in same thing with your boots, you know, always be careful, you know, when you're, when you're out in the woods and you, hey, you got those boots, turn them upside down and shake them, make sure spiders or in some parts of the country, scorpions or something else hasn't uh, decided to take up residence. But uh, yeah, sometimes it's better to identify the target. That's a target identification is a, uh, is a very, very important skill. So anyway, that's, that's the only funny, real funny story I can remember. Um, that I was a party to, and I've I've heard stories of, you know, people shooting rats in cabins and, and all kinds of things. But uh, this is that was the funny one. Anyway, that's it for another edition of Old School Guns. As always, you can uh, leave comments for us on Podbean, and uh, uh, I will certainly get around to answering them. And you can even email me at kbmakel at aol.com. But for now, this is Old School Guns out.